I think the congregation is divided now between those who think that's hilarious and those who think that's sacrilegious. If you are a guest this morning, we're glad to have you, but we are in a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, and we're on the last of the ten. We're on the Tenth Commandment today. Now, next Sunday, so we will begin a new series, and it'll be our Easter series. I'll be preaching on the resurrection each Sunday for five Sundays and how the resurrection impacts our life in a practical way. So we're talking about how the resurrection lifts us out of despair, for instance, gives us a purpose, gives us hope, gives us joy, and gives us faith and confidence. So we're going to really encourage our congregation to bring guests. It's a good time uh, to bring guests during that time. Somebody told me this morning if uh, they had guests, they had guests here for the service. I said, I wish you'd have told me that in advance. I would have worked a lot harder on the sermon. So I'll be working real hard on that sermon series if you get one to bring guests. Tenth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. That's the tenth commandment. That word covet, I'm not sure it's one we use everyday conversation, uh, maybe not as familiar with. It's roughly the equivalent of greed. In fact, those biblical terms, covetousness and greed, are practically synonymous. One commentator gives this definition. Covetousness, the unquenchable desire to possess more stuff, or things of this world, the rapacious appetite or desire for gain. Uh, as my son-in-law pointed out to me yesterday, this is the one commandment of the Ten Commandments that has to do almost entirely with attitude, attitude, and the desires of the heart. It is condemned in Scripture. Proverbs 21, 26, Solomon says, of a wicked and lazy person, they are filled with craving all day long. Jesus said, in Luke 12, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3.5, don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. And again, Paul in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I read a study, it was a study out of Canada, it's a white paper, where they, they had looked at the neighborhoods in which people who won the lottery lived. So if you had a big winner in the lottery, they went and started looking at their neighbors. And it turns out that neighbors of lottery winners began spending more money on conspicuous consumerism. They're upgrading their cars, they're making improvement to their houses, and it leads to a greater incidence of bankruptcies in the neighborhoods of lottery winners. We call that keeping up with the who? The Joneses. Don't even try. And so uh, today we think about our ordinary desires. What's the difference between an ordinary desire and covetousness or greed? Right? So it's, there's nothing wrong with desiring to improve or maybe if a single person wants to be married and they desire a certain kind of spouse or even a particular person for a spouse, that's not wrong. Someone who wants a house or even a particular house, that's not wrong. When does legitimate desire become a sin, become covetousness? Or let me suggest three things. Number one, when we desire forbidden things, things which are forbidden to us. The second part of this commandment says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife to desire someone else's spouse. That can never happen. They can never legitimately become ours. So that is covetousness. Number two, when we're willing to sin to get what we desire. So the classic example of this from the Bible in the Old Testament, King David, king over Israel, who desired his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba, and was willing to arrange for her husband to be killed in combat 
so that he could marry her. That, he was coveting. That's greed, covetousness. When we're willing to sin to get it. And number three, when we seek happiness through things. When we think we're going to find our contentment and our fulfillment in that next thing that we acquire. And Luke describes the Pharisees as those who dearly loved their money. There was a billionaire who ran for the presidency in 1992. Put his picture up there and see if you remember what his name was. Ross Perot. Ross Perot, a billionaire who ran for president. The thing I remember about Ross Perot is a, a quote that he gave. He said, <clears throat> and this has to do with money and things. He says, if you get lucky, make a lot of money, buy a lot of stuff, it's going to break. Go to a yacht basin any place in the world. Nobody is smiling, and I'll tell you why. Something broke that morning. The generator's out. The microwave oven doesn't work. He said, things just don't bring happiness. So that's covetousness. Now, now we flip that over. The opposite of covetousness would be contentment. Contentment. And that's really what we want to strive for and cultivate. And I want to spend the rest of my time this morning thinking about, learning about contentment and how to be content. Now, the biblical secret to contentment is found in a thank you note that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church. Now, Paul founded the church in Philippi, preached there about 18 months, and then he moved on. But this was a church, this Philippian church, that continued to support Paul financially in his missionary endeavors. So they had sent him a, a financial gift. And what we have in Philippians chapter 4 is Paul is writing part of this letter to the church is a thank you for that financial gift. But he uses it as an opportunity to teach them how to be content. And that's what I want to look at and just suggest four ways for us to be content. Number one, we learn contentment from God. We learn it from God. Philippians 4.11, Paul says, I'm not saying this, meaning my thank you here, my gratitude, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances are. So I know this is kind of obvious, but I don't want to brush over it, that contentment is something we have to learn. We're not born content. You've seen newborn babies, I'm sure. They're not content. They're grasping. They got the gimme hands. The first word a child learns, it's not mommy. It's certainly not daddy. It's usually mine. Mine, mine, mine. And just because we get older doesn't mean we are content. It's something we have to learn. A little baby will turn into a, a, a malcontent toddler, which will turn into a malcontent teenager, and then a malcontent middle-ager, and we can be malcontent old codgers unless we have a humble spirit and are willing to learn contentment. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 6, Though a man lives a thousand years twice over, but doesn't find contentment, well, what's the use? <coughs> so, where did Paul learn contentment? He learned it from God. He looked at the varied experiences of his life, and he lived an amazing life. Ups and downs, highs and lows. He had friends in low places, but he was also an evangelist to kings. And he looked at all of that through the lens of Scripture, through that paradigm, and he learned contentment from God. We're not going to learn it from the world, are we? You think about the American economy. It's built on consumerism. The whole advertising industry is geared toward making us discontent so that we want the bigger house and we want different clothes or a newer phone. We want something that we do not have. Jesus said, whoever becomes as humble as this little child 
is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we want a humble, teachable spirit. A lot of us went to the men's retreat over the weekend, about 16 from our church. It was a great time. And one of the preachers, uh, I think Friday night, Tim Gray was preaching on Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, just one verse. I've read this story of Daniel 30 times, I'm sure. He mined so much good, valuable, applicable life lesson out of that. And was just reminded, we can always come to God and learn, learn something new. So that's the approach that we want to have. We learn contentment from God. John Gardner was a 1964 Presidential Medal of Freedom winner. He writes, there's a myth that learning is just for young people. But as the proverb says, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. He says, I took on a, a new job after my 77th birthday, but I'm still learning. Learn all your life. Learn from your failures. Learn from your successes. When you hit a spell of trouble, ask, what is God trying to teach me? The lessons aren't always happy ones, but they keep coming. All right, so we're just talking about contentment. We learn it from God. Number two, we affirm it in words. Affirm it in words. I have learned, Paul says, to be content. Now, he's doing two things there. He's writing to the Philippians about what he's learned, but also he's affirming something about himself, that he is a content person. Paul is saying, I am a content person. He does this in other places in Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. This is like a form of self-talk. Have you heard of self-talk before? Self-talk, the messages we say about ourselves. I, I, I heard about a mother of a rambunctious two-year-old, and she was in the grocery store. She's got the cart. She's got the two-year-old up in the cart. She's pushing the cart around. She's been in there a while, and she said, hang on there, Lisa. Uh, you know, hang in there just a little bit longer, Lisa. Be patient, Lisa. It's going to be okay, Lisa. There was an elderly lady in the store. She overheard this. She says, you know, I really like the way you're talking to your little daughter, Lisa. And the mother said, Lisa's not her name. Lisa's my name. We call that self-talk, what we, what we say to ourselves. And <clears throat> I was thinking about this, that this morning when we were singing that song, I'm standing on, the, standing on His Promises. We just sing that, right? Part of that song is saying words of affirmation about God and who God is and what God does. But part of that song is affirming who we are and what I am, what I do. I am standing on God's promises. I'm, that's an affirmation in that song, when we sing it, we're saying it to ourselves. We're affirming something about ourselves. So when was the last time in our self-talk we said, I, I am content. I am a content person. Now, I want to recommend this as, as a part of our prayer. So if you use uh, the Lord's Prayer as a template, that's what I do. And a lot of people do. That's why he gave it to it, I, I think. The Lord's Prayer is a template for prayer. So, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name is a time for praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done is the time to intercede for the church, the kingdom of God, and other people. And then we come to that part where he says, give us this day our daily bread, where we pray for our needs. But it's also a time when we can thank God for our daily bread. Most of us have our daily bread, and maybe for a week on out. And that's, that's a, before we begin asking for things, nothing wrong with asking. The Bible says, ask, 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 ask in prayer. But before we get to that, we can say, Lord, uh, I have food and clothing, and I am content. 
I am content. If we just say that about ourselves. We say, Steve, what if it's not true? What if I'm not? So what? Ask God to make it true. We can affirm all kinds of things. We can go through the fruit of the Spirit. I am loving. I am joyful. I am peaceful. I am patient. I am kind. I am good. I'm gentle, I'm faithful, I'm self-controlled. Now, all those things 100% true? No, but then we can say, God, make that true of me. The Bible teaches us to do this all the time. Say, God, give me a repentant heart. Give me a heart of flesh to replace my heart of stone. Give me both the desire and the ability to obey you and to do your will and to work out my salvation in fear and trembling. God, make these things true about me. Think of what James says about the relationship and we're going to look at it here. What, James is going to say something here about the relationship between covetousness, contentment, and prayer. James 4.1. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Now, doesn't that sound like covetousness? Desiring, scheming, trying to get the things we don't have. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Well, let's ask for contentment. What we really need, I mean, there's all kinds of things we can ask for, ask for, but what we really need is to be content. And we can ask for God that for contentment on a daily basis. Think what a difference that will make if every day we say to ourselves, I am content. God, make that true of me. So we're pursuing contentment. And the third thing I want to say this morning from this thank you note is we are to remember contentment in prosperity. So in times of prosperity, we're going to tap into our memories. Paul says, now I've edited this and, and I'm going to break out here the prosperity side from the scarcity side. So right here we're in prosperity. Paul says, I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any, every situation, well-fed, living in plenty. Now, does that sound incongruous? That Paul would say, I, I've learned to be content in plenty? When someone is prosperous, do they need to learn to be content? Well, yeah, that may be more challenging to learn contentment when we're prosperous. God warns the Israelites, Deuteronomy 8.11, beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God. What did Paul remember? He remembered three things. Number one, he remembered he had plenty. There were times when he was prosperous. There were times when Paul was being entertained by royalty. He was living a very sumptuous life. So he knew there were times when he had plenty. And we want to remember that too. And I'll just say this as a generality. I do not mean to take anything away from somebody who's in genuine need or struggling financially. I know that exists. But as a rule, in general, the American church is prosperous. As a rule, the American church, uh, the American Christian is prosperous. Now, we don't always see it that way. It all kind of is relative. It depends on who I might compare myself to. If I compare myself to Bill Gates, if I compare myself to Elon Musk, Okay, not so much. But I have read, I have, have you read this? If you make $25,000 a year, then you're at a higher standard of living than 90% of the people on the planet. So that would be top 10%. If you make $50,000 a year, it's the top 1% of the people on the planet. The majority of the people living right now on the planet do not own a car. So we want to remember that, yeah, relatively speaking, 
we are prosperous. Second thing we want to remember, what Paul remembered, is the prosperity that we have comes from God. So we're self-made men and women. We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, the American dream. We've worked, you worked hard for your money. You worked hard for it, honey. I know that. I get that. But it's not all us. It's God who's involved in providing for us all along. That's important to remember, or you know, we will not have established that baseline trust and faith in the provision of God. And when we think to the future, when I'm not in my prime earning years, oh my, what's going to happen to me? We'll be anxious. We'll become hoarders. We'll find it very difficult to give. The same passage we referred to earlier, Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18. God says to the Israelites, when you become successful, don't say I'm rich and I've earned it all myself. Instead, remember, that's what we're talking about right here. Remember that the Lord your God gives you the strength to make a living. It's always God who's prospering us in times of prosperity. And then the other thing Paul remembered was the reason he was prosperous. The reason, have you ever noticed, I'm sure you have, God gives some of his children more than they need and others seems like they don't have enough? Why is that? Part of it is he's teaching us that we're to give, we're to share those of us who are prosperous. 2 Corinthians 9.11, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Our prosperity is not always to raise our standard of living. It's often God's expectation is to raise our standard of giving. Scott Roden writes, We must never for a single moment lose sight of the stark realization that whenever we deal with money, we're dealing with dynamite. What is one day that which we control, the next day becomes the controller. Such dynamite must be diffused, and the greatest diffuser that we as Christians have at our disposable, as disposal is the opportunity to take that which seeks to dominate us and simply give it away. Think about it. There's no greater expression of money's total lack of dominance over us or of its low priority in our lives than when we can, with joy and peace, give it away for the Lord's work. So simply saying here as we pursue contentment that in times of prosperity, remember God. Remember God's the provider. There's a reason why we're prosperous. And then one more thing, fourthly. Uh, spiritualize contentment in scarcity. In times of scarcity, spiritualize contentment. I'll tell you what I mean by that. So Paul says also here in his thank you note, I know what it is to be in need. I've learned the secret of being content, whether hungry or in want, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now the last part of that verse there in verse 13 is kind of a bumper sticker verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And it is a great verse. And sometimes we use it in terms of, you know, I can uh, surmount any challenge. I can climb this mountain through Christ who gives me strength. I can sail the ocean through Christ who gives me strength. But the actual context here is Paul is saying, in times of scarcity, I can be content through Christ who gives me strength. Paul knew times of scarcity. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. This is Paul speaking of his personal experience. I've been hungry and thirsty. I've gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. <clears throat> Does that sound a little contradictory to the whole idea that God is meeting our needs? That he would be cold and hungry and shivering? What, what happened to the meeting of the needs? 
Well, two things. Number one, this was a temporary scarcity. During a temporary period, he's going without. But God eventually circled back around and provided him what he needed, food, clothing, shelter, or he wouldn't have lived to write this passage. So it was temporary, and sometimes we go through things that are temporary. I don't watch much TV these days, but back when I did, I used to watch a show called Fat Guys in the Woods. Anybody watch Fat Guys in the Woods? So, so Creek Stewart was the survivalist, and he would take three city, city guys like me who know nothing about living off the land, and they would spend a week in the woods living off the land. Well, for most of that week, they simply went hungry. Apparently, it's hard to live off the land. But what he said to them, it was something like, let's see, you can live three days without shelter. You can go three, no, three, what, three hours without shelter, three days, uh, three days without water. Anyway, whatever those two are, it's three weeks without food. You got water, three weeks without food. And what he would say to these guys who were hungry, he says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. And so one of the guys says that, that was the beginning of the end of my food dependency, you know. So it's temporary, but the other thing is that in times of scarcity, and for Paul, God is meeting our need. He's meeting our need to remember that our primary need is not material and physical. Our primary need is spiritual. It's spiritual. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul wrote to slaves, no less, and said, you're a slave? Don't let that bother you. Be content because Christ is your sustenance. Christ is your contentment. Paul wrote to singles who wanted to be married, but for whatever circumstance, were not. He said, are you single? Don't let that bother you. Christ is your provision. Christ is your provision. Be content. He wrote to those who were married and they didn't want to be married anymore. He said, well, don't, don't divorce your spouse. You don't have to do that. Christ is your provision. Christ is your sustenance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because God is not only our provider, Christ is the provision. He's the provision. In times of scarcity, sometimes like no other time, for Paul, when you're, when you're hungry, cold, without adequate shelter, that's the time to lean into spiritual things. Right? We learn that the spiritual need is the great need. Jesus said, John 6, 27, don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. Just a few verses later, he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. When, when Jesus says, spend your energy seeking eternal life, he's not talking about working for salvation. Our salvation is the gift of God. He's talking about putting energy, effort, work into connecting with the Holy Spirit, who is the living water, enter uh, connecting with Jesus Christ, who's the bread of life, tapping into the spiritual resources that are our greater needs. Scarcity reminds us to do that. How much energy are we putting into that? John Mark Homer says a lot of people want the life of Christ without adopting the lifestyle of Christ, which was a lifestyle of being in the Word, meditating, reflecting on the Word, prayer, Fasting, silence, solitude, and service. Service. And then he, he, he wraps this up in Philippians 4.19, this thank you note. This same God, 
who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches would have been give, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to have the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. I'm going to have a prayer and pray over the elements. And, you know, thinking of that, of God's provision for us, spiritual provision, this is part of what we're remembering. If you're a guest, the, the way we do this, we have communion stations set up around the room. So there's three up here and three in the back. And we'll just be getting up from our seats while the music is playing, going to these tables, lifting off the lid. There's two cups stacked together, a cup of juice and a cup of bread. And we'll partake of those elements. And it's gluten-free back there in the corner. So just a heads up, that's how it works. Probably there'll be some instructions here on the screen at some point. And I was reading in the one-year Bible this morning, Jesus' little interaction there with the Sadducees. This is a Jewish sect of his time that didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And he told them, you made two big mistakes here. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Specifically the power of God for resurrection and eternal life. But we do. We don't want to make that mistake. We know what the Bible says, and we believe the power of God. We're going to live again after we die. <clears throat> but before we do that, I just want to tell you about Joseph Scriven. Lived in 1842. He's an Irishman. He graduated from Trinity Bible College, and he was engaged to be married to a childhood sweetheart from his hometown. On the wedding day, she's coming to meet him. He's watching. She's coming over the bridge, and when she gets over the bridge, she's horseback. The horse bucks her off. She falls over the bridge into the river, icy water. He jumps in to save her, but she's already dead. And so he is heartbroken, and he immigrates to Canada, where he falls in love again, and again he gets engaged. But before they can be married, Joseph Scriven, his fiance gets struck with an illness, very serious. They have to postpone the wedding. This happens again and again and again for three years until she dies. And he's heartbroken, and he never gave his heart to another person. And his mom back in Ireland is worried about him and he's worried about her. And so he penned a little poem, Joseph Scriven, about the sufficiency of Christ in difficult times. And uh, before we pray over the elements today, uh, I want to read you that poem. It became a great hymn that, that we may have sung. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we remember our sufficiency is in Christ, both on the material side, probably even more importantly, here on the spiritual side. And we remember that today as we head into this time of communion. And we eat the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body that he sacrificed. And the, we drink the juice and we're thinking about the blood that Jesus shed. We remember. We remember that your power, that your power to raise us and give us eternal life is because Jesus took the wrath and the punishment of our sin upon himself on the cross. And so, yes, our hearts are full of gratitude, thanksgiving, and contentment. In Jesus' name we pray.